Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week. James Paniki is my name and it's great to see you again. Now, not a week goes by without a story of China's growing vigour in regulatory enforcement targeting local tech giants, be it the massive antitrust fine imposed on Alibaba or the probe launched just this week against Meituan, the online food delivery giant. Our reporting is pointing to greater levels of coordination among Chinese regulators, and that multi-pronged approach has significant implications for business. Our reporter Yonex Lee will be joining us in just over 10 minutes' time. First up, though, to the Petro-Ecuador bribery scandal now unfolding in US courts. The Ecuadorian state-run oil company is in the midst of a US bribery investigation, but there have been some interesting sidebar issues emerging as well including the question of whether, under US law, someone who paid bribes to the company should be required to hand back the cash. The question isn't as straightforward as you might think. MLEX's man in New York is Richard Vanderford. He has published an analysis of the case, and I'm pleased to say that he joins me now. So, Richard, uh, let's start from the beginning. What, broadly speaking, is the Petro-Ecuador prosecution about, and maybe tell us something about the specific case that you've covered most recently. Well, there's a there's sort of a U.S. Um, criminal investigation into Petro Ecuador generally. There's kind of a broad crackdown by American authorities of um, on corruption in Latin America, and they're just pulling at threads and finding more and more cases or instances of corruption, and. The cases are centered in uh, Miami, and some of them are in, in New York as well. The one I covered most recently, it's uh, it's against a man called Ramiro Andres Luque Flores, who is uh, from Argentina. He now lives in Miami, and he did remediation work for Petro Ecuador. He paid bribes to officials there. He maintains that he was actually extorted, that um, he had a contract to do remediation work, and it came time to get paid and officials came to him and said, the way you get paid is to pay us bribes. He ultimately turned into a cooperator in the case, uh, one of the first cooperators with uh, prosecutors in the U.S. That cooperation led to more charges uh, in the U.S., I think is in Ecuador as well. So he, he pleaded guilty to a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act conspiracy count and he was recently sentenced. Okay, so we have the company Petroecuador, which is itself a target of U.S. investigations, but the company wanted something from uh, this uh, businessman who you've just mentioned. Right, so the company wanted restitution from the businessman. In the U.S. criminal system, you're allowed to ask for, and, and actually the courts have to, give restitution in certain cases. And that's what they wanted. They uh, they claimed essentially that the contracts had been inflated by the bribes being baked into the contracts, and they wanted this cooperator to to pay a lot of money. Uh, at first, they demanded you know just under six million. Then they upped their demand um, to about twenty two million. In their view, it was common sense logic. It's what they said in their court filings that uh, you know he paid bribes that that corrupted these contracts, and he should pay more to them. And the judge didn't see it that way, obviously. The judge ultimately concluded that if they wanted money from this person, they're dreaming that uh, the company itself was so, the the corruption was so systemic in a way that um, it itself was to blame. 
Right. Um, the the judge ultimately found that. Um, well, actually, she she hasn't given a reason for her ruling. She sort of made a bottom line ruling at the sentencing that the company can't uh, get restitution through this method. But prosecutors and um, Luque argued that that Petro Ecuador was effectively complicit in the bribery because it was so corrupt that he couldn't really turn around and, and claim to be a victim in, in a U.S. court. Okay, so how does this case and everything that you've talked about until now fit into the larger fight over restitution? Yeah, the, in the corruption space, restitution is it's relatively untested. The, the law has allowed for restitution for victims of property crime for a long time, and there's a, a logic to it. Uh, I mean, if you stole from me, then the logic is that I should just be able to go to court and be made whole without launching a whole separate proceeding against you. And it, normally it's tacked on to the end of a sentencing hearing. You know, how much How much did he steal? He stole $200,000. Okay, well, give that person $200,000. In white-collar cases, though, it's something that hasn't been seen so much, usually because they're a little too complicated to calculate a kind of straightforward restitution like if you think of an insider trading case, how do you identify victims? How do you identify how much each victim was owed or some of the you know, the LIBOR or the interest benchmark scandals? It's very difficult to figure out who is owed money. And, and that's kind of the thing that's been in, in white-collar cases generally, that it's hard to identify a victim. And so the restitution isn't really a part of it. In the FCPA space, though, there was an important case in New York uh, against a hedge fund called at the time called Oxif, uh, prosecutors had made a deal with Oxif to resolve a bribery case, um, but investors, uh, it was involving bribery in, in Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo specifically, uh, investors came forward and said that they had legal rights in uh, DRC that had been impacted by Oxif's bribes and they wanted money. And a judge said they could seek that restitution um, and this was the appropriate proceeding through which to do it. Uh, prosecutors had come out against that request, but the judge said, well, you know, the problems of this, the doing it this way creates, those are problems for you, but the law seems clear. Mm. And what about the prosecutors? What, I mean, what is the prosecutor's take on all of this? It, it's funny because their posture switches a bit when they're at the, the phase where they want to resolve a case. I mean, normally they're, they're prosecuting criminals and, and they want them to pay for what they've done to victims. But especially in the anti-corruption space, they sort of rely on cooperation. They rely on companies coming forward to self-report violations. They're, they're difficult cases to resolve. So they would like a free hand to kind of say to companies, you know, this is what you're going to get from the settlement you're negotiating with us. And this is the bottom line of what you're going to pay. Or, or to cooperators, they're in a similar boat. They want to be able to say, okay, well, you're going to get a prison sentence that looks like this, or probation. And uh, restitution kind of interferes with that because it puts a calculation in the, in the hands of the judge. So for prosecutors, it's not, a, it's not welcome exactly when victims come forward or putative victims come forward for, for money because it kind of messes up a pretty complicated process, or what's already a pretty complicated process. Okay, so what are the lessons here from the uh, Petro-Ecuador case? I mean, what's the broader outlook on restitution in these U.S. anti-corruption cases? There's not enough 
of a body of cases to say, well, it never works or it always works. What's clear is it's, it's not some very easy way to, to uh, come to a court and get paid, especially if your, your, your company, like in Petro Ecuador's case, is arguably involved in the bribery. Even in the Oxif case, the, the hedge fund case, it ended up being quite a complicated question and the two sides settled. The investors who claimed they were wrong settled with the hedge fund. Um, the hedge fund at one point said, you know, these investors themselves, they were indirectly involved in the payment of bribes. So, you know, there was a bit of complicity there and the investors dropped their demands and, and they were able to come to some kind of deal. Um, but I think the the takeaway is that you know, it's going to depend a lot on what's happening in a specific case, but it's not necessarily going to be easy for a company, especially a company that was in a situation like Petro Ecuador, to um, to just come to a U.S. court and say, "Well, can we have some more money, please?" Richard, it has been uh, great fun talking about this. Let's catch up again very soon. Thanks, James. Richard Vanderford is an MLEX reporter covering anti-bribery and corruption from New York. And Richard's analysis of the Petro-Ecuador case is available for you to read. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab and it will all be there at your fingertips. Coming up, China's multi-pronged regulatory approach and what it means for big tech. Thanks for staying with us. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you're a regular listener, make sure you tell a friend about the podcast and help us spread the news. Now, China has demonstrated to some of the country's largest technology players that antitrust oversight isn't limited to the State Administration for Market Regulation, the agency better known by the acronym SAMR, usually pronounced as SAMR. Recent events in the country show that, when needed, all regulatory agencies are prepared to pitch in on antitrust matters. Yonex Lee co-wrote our recent analysis of this trend, and she's our chief correspondent for Greater China, and she joins me now from Hong Kong. Um, So, Yonex, uh, we're, what, four months into China's antitrust campaign. So what is the regulatory trend that you've been observing? Um, I think China has proved to Big Tech that uh, its antitrust oversight uh, capability is not just limited to the State Administration for Market Regulation, SAMR. And whenever it's needed, um, I think cross-agency efforts are orchestrated to reach beyond what SAMR could achieve on its own. And we see that from banking, aviation, tax, um, to information technology. The sector, uh, the sector regulators are, are jumping in and they are capturing a share of this antitrust campaign. Well, what, what changes and what does it mean to businesses when regulators are acting in concert rather than on their own? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think regulators, you see that they are more bonded than ever, and so it calls for more um, sophisticated uh, compliance strategies by businesses. And more enforcers jumping in means more eyes are watching you, and it's harder for any mistake to be off um, the government's radar. And I think businesses will need to keep a close eye on not just SAMR activities, but also what the regulators say about um, the questionable uh, competition behavior. 
this is especially important because um, sometimes they may deliver remarks or understanding of composition rules that are not uh, always in perfect harmony. And so you have to make sure that you keep track of all these. And I think uh, the message to the big tech is clear that they are not too big to be regulated because um, all sectors, authorities are, are having you know, same hours back. All right. Now, just to illustrate this for our listeners, maybe just give us a few examples of how Chinese regulators come together to rein in big tech. Okay, um, I think it's uh, it came uh, it became obvious uh, since uh, late last year when the PBOC, um, the People's Bank of China, the, the central bank, uh, it became highly critical about uh, big tech monopolies, and they even issued uh, some draft antitrust provisions for the non-bank payment industry. Um, obviously taking aim at uh, Alipay and, and, and WeChat Pay. And also uh, the China Banking Insurance Regulatory uh, Commission, uh, they, they also criticize how fintech companies abuse their like, the market power to charge excessive uh, fees. And, all, and in December, um, Sam R had uh, established formal ties with uh, the Civil Aviation Administration. So they set up a com- cooperation mechanisms to go after anti-competitive conduct. The Ministry of Transport, the Ministry of Finance, and also the Ministry of uh, Industry of, and Information Technology, um, they all had a part. Um, say, for example, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology and MIIT, uh, they pledged to intensify competition supervision of the internet sector last week. And so they, um, they cite like uh, malicious blocking, false bundling to be the offenses that would be prioritized in the crackdown. All right. So, does this um, multi-pronged strategy have um, have any side effects? I mean, do others risk being caught in the crossfire here? Um, I think um, definitely, because um, the regulators arguably they only keep track of matters that fall within their own jurisdictions. But then we see uh, instances when the boundaries become very um, you know, blurred and cause confusion. Um, say, for example, Sam R, uh, it ordered Alibaba to open up uh, its data and payment resources earlier this month. And uh, this is a request not directly related to the exclusive dealings uh, for which uh, the e-commerce uh, giant was uh, fined a record 18 billion yuan. And at the same time, the PPOC, they formulated um, in January antitrust rules for the non-bank payment sector. It took the lead in defining the appropriate relevant markets and even asked for possible split-ups of the dominant players. This is a power not uh, currently not available under the mon- anti-monopoly law. So you see some kind of overlap is, is happening in, uh, in here. And this contrasts with uh, w- what China did in 2018 because back then it merged three former antitrust bodies into one. Uh, just to resolve the jurisdictional overlaps. But then uh, we see that the overlap is emerging. We can't say if the old days are back, but then um, the emerging antitrust powers, uh, they they do cause confusion sometimes, yeah. Mm. Well, is there, as things stand at the moment, is there a formal mechanism for the exchange of information? Yeah, I mean, is there an existing platform for them to all get together and exchange views on antitrust matters? Yeah, um, yes, um, the State Council's Anti-Monopoly Committee, we understand that it is a useful platform for information exchange. And so it's a committee formed by senior officials from SAMR, from uh, the Central Bank, from the Ministry of Commerce and MIIT, 
and then uh, and and also the National Development and Reform Commission, the economic uh, top economic planning body, and also those from uh, finance, justice, transport, uh, banking, uh, statistics, securities, etc. And so. Um, so it is a useful platform for exchange of information. But having said that, we still believe that the scope of the exchange is restricted by law, because um, by law that, uh, say for example, SAMR has to keep uh, commercial uh, commercial secrets confidential, and but at least we know that they are uh, trying to strengthen ties with the counterparts on information exchange. Say for example, the the Civil Aviation Administration. Uh, under the mechanism that they established, they have to uh, communicate uh, in a timely manner any clues or potential offenses that they, they receive. So you can see that they are getting closer than ever. Mm. This has uh, been a, a fascinating development, Yonex. So thank you for speaking to us about it today, uh, and we'll speak again very soon. Mm-hmm. Thank you, James. Nice talking to you too. Yonex Lee, MLEX's Chief Correspondent for Greater China, speaking to us from Hong Kong and her analysis of the situation, written with our Shanghai-based analyst Yang Wei, is available now at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And click on the News Hub tab for that article and for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. Regrettably, that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MLEX. Thank you very much for listening. I hope to catch you again next week with more regulatory news from around the globe. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now. Bye for now.